And by the way, this is not uh, to call for amens per se, but sometimes it is interesting in our Bible study this week, it came up about we, God's given us emotion. So I heard an amen after one of the songs that was sung this morning or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good because God's given us emotions and it's a wonderful thing to just even delight in the things that God's doing. Well, in this morning's message, we come to this passage. We've entitled it right from the scriptures, verse 30. He must increase. And in order for that to happen, I must decrease, is what John said. But that is true in all of our lives. But I wanted to have the focus on him increasing. As we come to this passage, there is an impulse that every one of us have, and that is to follow a charismatic, especially, or an influential leader. It is not something new. It is not something new in our world. It is not something that is new in theological circles or religious circles. It is not something that's new with our children. Children have heroes. They have people that they look up to. And by the way, we ought to be encouraging our children to have as heroes people of the Bible and people who have stood for righteousness and people who have made a stand for the things of God in that sense. But it is not uncommon, we realize that, to have heroes. Some examples uh, that we find, even scripturally, we find in 1 Corinthians, as we just read, that the Corinthian church had gotten to the stage that some were saying, well, I'm of Paul, he's my hero. Well, I'm of, a, I'm of being blasted out of here. No, I'm of uh, Apollos, I don't know what happened there. But, uh, and others were saying, oh no, I'm of Jesus. You know, and that was to be the squash of it all, you know. But people were basically following after names. And I'm sure you know some. That is a very common thing with all of us to some extent. We love to name drop. Oh, I know so-and-so. So-and-so has been in my home. And that's supposed to impress people. And that's supposed to do things for people. So we have an impulse to do that as human beings. And I want to first of all say that there is some legitimacy, listen, there is some legitimacy uh, even scripturally to look up to people and even to follow after them in a sense. For example, Paul said, did he not, that we were to follow him. He did. But the reason he did say that is because he went on to say, because I follow Christ. And so he had himself as an example, not because of who he was, but because he was following Christ. He even went so far as to say he wanted us to observe and mock out others who were also following Christ and to follow after their example. So he wasn't looking for an idolatrous relationship, but he did want us to be aware that we need to mock out people who are examples to us so that we can see their love for Christ, and follow that. So there is a legitimacy, but the key is obviously following God or following after Christ. But incumbent within that is also dangers when we talk about the tendency, the impulse that we have to follow people and to mark names down. And it can cause all kinds of difficulties. Sometimes followers, listen, elevate leaders to a position higher than even the leader did themselves. That is true, listen, in theological circles. 
that there are people that are following after names and following after leaders, and if those leaders came back from the grave, they would be appalled at how people are using them and so forth. Not that they didn't want to follow Christ and so forth, but sometimes we can elevate leaders even to positions greater than the leader did or ever wanted themselves. And it can also be involved in being divisive and very destructive, as it was, by the way, in the Corinthian church. Just one simple quote, because I could spend the morning on that, and that's not really what I want to spend on. But I give you a quote from Gary Burridge, who probably doesn't mean much to many of you, but to let you know where it came from. He was involved in the NIV application commentary on John. And of all the quotes that I came across, this was rather interesting regarding how we need to be careful. And it just so happened when he was writing it, he used it in the tense that he did. But he says, I know of a, and I quote, I know of a charismatic influential teacher who joined a growing local church. And he said he gained a strong following and then after two years found himself at odds with the pastoral leadership. He left discrediting the church's leadership as he departed. This month, and that was at the time of his writing, I learned that over 100 people are leaving, and he puts that in quotes, with him, and that now he is going to launch his own church. All of this behavior is disguised, listen, disguised in religious language. God's leading, God's doing this, God's doing that. But in fact, in this case, this leader needs to take a lesson from John the Baptist. He must become, it must become less while Jesus becomes the greater. Religious allegiances are so deceptive that they even trick those who cherish the leaders dearly. That's something for us to end, end quote, by the way. Something for us to pay attention to. It became, because that's what happened in the Corinthian church, our reading this morning. They were looking to godly men, but they were actually causing divisions in the church, and one was speaking against Apollos so he could follow Paul. One speaking in favor of Paul and against Apollos and so forth. And you'd be surprised how many local churches get destroyed over those very things and so on. So when we come to this text, it's very important because what was a threat in the advancement of the kingdom of God in John also is a threat to us. The key is, how is it handled? How was it handled right by John the Baptist? What potentially could have been very divisive. Problems will arise. There is no getting away from that. They will always arise in our personal lives as well as collectively as a local church. We know from Acts chapter 6, for example, that there were there's a potential of uh, division in the church over, as you know, the taking care of the tables and taking care of the Hellenistic uh, Jews and so forth. And it had to be handled carefully. In Philippians chapter 4, there was a potential problem with just two women in that there could have been a division in that word work because of the way two women were behaving. And we'll find that throughout Scripture. How we handle them is the key. And whether or not God is leading or whether or not we are just following our own will. 
And that can happen. Once we have our will in motion, we can end up using godly terms, as Burge mentioned. We can use godly terms, but in reality, we're following our own will, accomplishing our own purpose. And while it looks good, God is not behind it at all. Well, we want to see how John handled this potential problem for divisions even early on in the ministry of Christ. Let me remind us to where we've been. To this point in the Gospel according to John, from chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have learned several things. He has been demonstrating to us, lest we forget, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. He has been demonstrating to us that Jesus Christ is the one that was promised of God. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, though he hasn't, we haven't gotten to chapter 14. He's been demonstrating to us how we need to see that it is God's provision for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. He's done it by showing his superiority, that is the superiority of Jesus Christ, to John the Baptist. That was in chapter 1. He's showing us the power, of the demonstration of his Messiahship in chapter 2 by showing his ability to perform miracles. Remember the water changed into wine. He has shown us and demonstrated the Messiahship of Jesus Christ by showing his authority even regarding worship when he cleansed the temple already. He's shown us the demonstration of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ by telling us in chapter 3 that he came from the Father. He was with him to begin with. And that he had to be lifted up on the cross to death to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God in chapter 3. So almost, whether you realize it or not, like the writer of Hebrews, who deals with the superiority of Jesus Christ, for example, to angels and to the Levitical priesthood and to other things, whether you realize it or not, John's been doing the same thing here. He's been showing you the superiority of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, which is what he wants to point to, to everything that they even knew that was coming. And now he comes to an important challenge that's a challenge to every believer in every generation in every church. So let's take a look at it. In verse 25, we find the, dis excuse me, the discussion that develops. Verse 25. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. First of all, we see this discussion came up between some of John's disciples, not all of them, and a Jew. And I think that is a good translation there, the singular. Some of you are probably looking at the plural. And uh, while there is documentation on both, I think the singular is probably the most accurate from what I can tell. So he's dealing with a Jew. We don't know anything about him. We know very little, and in fact nothing, just other than a Jew comes along, and he wants to have this discussion with John's disciples. About what? He tells us. It's about purification. And by the way, turn back just for a second to chapter 2 of John, verse 6 for just a minute, just to remind you. It's the same word that's used here. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Remember, we talked about that back then, where they would have to wash their hands and do all this cleansing. So it's the same idea. So what you've got is this Jew comes along, and he wants to get some clarification and have a discussion in relationship to the Jewish washings and to what they have seen. And by the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are very helpful to us, 
indicate that the Essenes, and that was part of the things that were discovered, it was one of their very important issues was the concept of purification, the concept of washings. So in the time of our Lord, it was something that was very uh, of high interest, if you will, even from historical evidence that we can find to know about the details of these washings. So that's just a normal thing that happens. We don't know what the discussion was, but then and now it's okay to have debates. It's okay to have discussions theologically. And if we can put ourselves into verse 25, what took place? Well, it could have been that he might have been saying, why do you need this baptism? You know, I'm familiar with these washings. Where does this bap what is this baptism that you're talking about? Where does it fit in? And how does this one that Jesus is now doing, how does that fit in? That could have been the discussion. Comparing the baptisms, looking at, as I mentioned last week, proselyte baptism and the washings and then, and then the baptism of John the Baptist and then Jesus. And I'm sure in this Jew's mind was something along the lines, you know, can we talk about this? I want to see how everything fits in. I want to see what, what's the significance. Is there a significance? Should we be doing this? How does it fit in? Well, we could go on all day about that. We don't know. But that's probably the way it went, such as there are discussions today. And that's a healthy thing, by the way, to have discussions. However, it becomes complicated. How does it become complicated? Well, the complication comes up in verse 26. Out of this discussion about purification, we find this in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, and by the way, that's rather interesting because it's the only place that I know of in Scripture that John the Baptist is called Rabbi. That was usually a term that was reserved for those, by the way, that had been to certain schools, but it was used this time for John, and it was also used for Jesus. And we've already seen referring to him kind of as a teacher. And they come to him and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing. And it says, and all are coming to him. So what has happened, put it in historical context, John the Baptist came on the scene, and if we would, and I won't do it now, when and compared to Matthew chapter 3, we'd find that everyone's coming out to John. So John the Baptist has been having, he started off very small, he dressed funny, he looked funny. He ate crazy food. And by the way, if you don't think so, just look at the scriptures. He ate camel's hair and so forth. And he ate locusts and, you know, honey and, you know, you know whatever. If you want to do that, that's okay, by the way. There's no, that's fine. Go have it for lunch today. That's all right. But the point is, and listen to me, we have to be careful. Because sometimes in our circles, listen, we begin to look down on people because of the way they're dressed or what they eat or what they're doing. We need to be careful because it's not the outside. You know that. God looks on the inside. And John the Baptist, this weirdo that came out of the wilderness in their mind, started preaching. He had no falling. All of a sudden, he's grown. Put it in his text. And now everyone's coming out to this baptism. And so he's growing. And now they're having this discussion. And then the disciples say, hey, wait a minute. Now they're going after Jesus. And he's starting to lose some of his following. And by the way, when it says all, just to help you with that, this is a hyperbole. How do we know that? Context, context, context. I always say that to you. And that's the only reason I would know that all doesn't mean every single one without exception. Why? Look at verse 23. That's the context. It says, and they were coming to be baptized. Coming to who? John, verse 23. So there were some people still coming to John, 
And when he says to all, it's, it's a hyperbole by the context. Obviously, there were more starting to go to Jesus Christ, and he's becoming successful. And it might be, listen, because there's application to us, it might be that they were longing for the past. We all do that. We start longing for the past when things were wonderful and everything was, everything was growing and everything. And the disciples of John were probably saying, hey, wait a minute, this was great to follow along with you. And your ministry was growing and everything was going great. And now the attention's going over there. Maybe we should, you know, hey, what's happening here, John? And so there was a potential for a lot of divisions. There's a potential for a lot of problems. There certainly was a concern. So what we want to concentrate is the solution to the problem, and it's found in verses 27 to 30. So the discussion goes on. Jesus' ministry is growing. John the Baptist, to some extent, his ministry is going smaller, if you will. And we come to the solution, verses 27 through 30. Let me read them again. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. Uh, why? Because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. And I'll hold verse 30. You know what it says, but we'll get there in a minute. Some general observations. What is it? His reply reveals his humility. John the Baptist, to help get victory in this situation, reveals his true humility and greatness. Now, the Lord says that he was a great man, and as far as the earth is concerned and men of the flesh, he was the greatest. Why? His humility. And it's revealed here. There's much, much application to us individually. There's much application for us as a church. Why? It challenges us to where our focus is. John was immediately challenged. His disciples, who he's been teaching and training, have come along. Jesus' ministry is growing, and some of his ministry is starting to diminish. His disciples want to know what's going on, and he has challenges to where the focus of John the Baptist is. Is it on him? Is it on his ministry? Is it on, if you will, by application, a local church? Is it on an individual ministry within a local church? What is the focus? Where is, it, where is the attention? How does he battle that? Well, you can look at verse 27. I just read it. The first way he does, number one for you, is the solution is found in that he recognizes that everything, got that? Everything comes from God. Is that your focus? Is that my focus? Everything comes from God. What is that? Even success. Even the growth in a ministry. Even the growth in your ministry. Even the growth in your life. Everything comes from God. There isn't anything. Any success or lack thereof is all in God's hands. Let me go further. In reality, when he says in verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it is given him from heaven, that is true of me and it's true of you. Regarding what? Life. Regarding our abilities. Regarding the fruit that comes out of our lives. Let me give you an example with my own life. I had nothing to do with my birth. Neither did you. Life came from God. I had nothing to do with the parents that I have. 
I didn't turn around before conception and say, by the way, I want them as parents. Right. You didn't do it either. I had no say in what country I was born in. I didn't say, I want to be born in the United States of, of America because it's free. Really? Had nothing to do with it. And neither did you. We don't think of these things. We have nothing to do with them. I had nothing to do with the abilities that I've been given from birth. You say, well, yeah, I've worked hard. I'll get to that in a second. You had nothing to do with your abilities. It was all built into you by God. I had nothing to do with my salvation. Nor did you. You say, oh, yes, I came to believe. Yeah, that's because God worked in your heart and you believed. It all comes from him. I need to be careful with this one, but I'll say it. I had nothing to do with my wife. <laughs> now, what do you mean? She's sitting right here. She's got a witness to this. What am I saying? God worked in a marvelous way. Did I, do we end up dating and so forth and so on? Yes, but it was all from God. My wife was a gift from God. I believe that. And just the way it came back is I go back, back in my ministry. I had nothing to do with my children. You say, oh, yes, you did. Wait a minute. Whether God opened the womb or closed the womb, that was up to him. And you might say that, no, it's not really. Oh, yes, it is. And they have children and their health and so forth. How about the ministry? I didn't decide when I was four years old, I want to be a pastor. In fact, I would have never chosen that. That's the truth. And so as I look at my own life, and I'm using myself as an example, you can look at your life, and I'm sure you can say, whatever you have came from God. And if you don't think so, you're sitting in that pew breathing air because God's allowing it. God could give you a heart attack in two seconds and you'd drop dead right there. And if you don't think that's true, just watch your news and watch what's happening all the time. We have nothing to boast of. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm just going to read it to you, save a little time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to read verse 7 to you. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul, in dealing with that church, listen to what he said. He said in verse 7, he says this, For who regards you as superior? For what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? He put everything in perspective for the Corinthian church. Anything you have came from God. The very life that you have right now. The very abilities. Now that does not mean that you don't make choices. That does not mean that you don't apply yourself. That's not what he's saying here. Of course we ought to apply ourselves. The scriptures tell us that and where to work hard. But I'm telling you, even over my lifetime, I've seen God, and by the way, you should be able to relate to this in this economy. I've seen God take people that were paupers and make them wealthy and then to take it all away again. And that's happening right now, by the way, in this country. And I've seen people who are very healthy and all of a sudden their lives were gone just like that. I knew someone that everybody thought was very healthy and was out jogging and dropped dead. I know another person who was out jogging had a heart attack and so forth. And everybody looked at that person and thought he was the, the spitting image of health and so forth. Whatever it is, it all comes from God. So the first perspective that he had on it was that everything comes from God, and he made it very clear. The second thing is verse 28. He understood what his role is. And we need to understand what our role is even in the body of Christ. If you look at verse 28, he said to them, I told you I wasn't the Christ. And in the body of Christ, in the local church, in our own lives, folks, 
we need to realize who we are and what role we play. We not only need to realize, number one, everything that we have comes from God, we need to realize where we fit in. Christ is the head of the church, not the elders, not Pastor Dan. And you say, Amen. And not you. Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. John was simply a forerunner, and he put it in perspective for his disciples. He said, all along I told you I wasn't him. All along I was pointing people to him. And I want you to see this. Catch it. There was no rivalry between Christ and John. There was no exceeding the role that they were put in. There was no comparison to others. Why? Because we do that all the time. We begin as individuals, and then we begin to do it as a church. We start comparing with other churches. We start comparing with other people in the body of Christ. We start comparing, and then there's a rivalry between them. We want to be more than we are, individually. We want to be that way collectively in our lives. Listen, 1 Corinthians 12, you can just mark that in your notes, makes it very clear that we're a body, and everybody has a different part in the body. It's not a rivalry. We understand it with our physical body. My fingers don't say to me in the morning, well, welcome, Dan. I want to be your brain today. It doesn't happen that way. And if my feet don't do what I want them to do, I don't get here. Right? True. If my brain doesn't function the right way, if my heart doesn't function, my liver, everything's got its parts. My eyes, my ears, it's the same way with you. There's no rivalry here. It's working together. And I want you to see that because as members of the body of Christ, while this is John the Baptist, and that is the context, he's saying, look it, I'm not Christ. I have a different role. I've been pointing you to him. I'm not in competition with Christ. That's what he's saying. There's no rivalry here. And why? He wants us to get something that I think is brought out in, in the book of Ephesians. Would you turn there? It's just so marvelous to me. I was a study on this this week. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3 for a second. I want you to see something. In Ephesians chapter 3, just go right to verse 10 for time. As he's talking about the church of Christ and how in chapter 3, by the way, this mystery of bringing the Jew and the Gentile into the body, he comes down to this, which is absolutely magnificent in verse 10. Why does God do this? Why is he bringing us into one body? In order, watch this, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made, now be made known, watch this, through the church. If you are a believer, he's not talking about a building here. When people think of churches, they think of nice structures, they think of, of buildings or denominations and so forth. That's not the way the scriptures use it. When he's talking about the church, he's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about people who have come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And they've been placed in the body. And notice this. The manifold wisdom, that's the same word, by the way, in the Septuagint, that was used to help you to see this, of the multicolored coat of Joseph. It's the same word. And what I'm trying to point out to you, that's in the Greek translation. I'm trying to point out to you is this. The multifaceted wisdom of God is to be made known through you and me. How or to who? 
watch, verse 10, to the rulers and authorities where? In heavenly places. What does that mean? Simply put is this. Through the church of Jesus Christ and how we function together, not in opposition. This was not John the Baptist against Christ. But as they function even properly, and I know this was before the church. I'm not saying that. By application to us is what I'm saying. In the church, we are all part of the body, and we are displaying the multifaceted wisdom of God to the angels. Did you realize that? As the angels are looking down from heaven, basically, allow me the application, they're scratching their head. And they're saying, How, look at what God's done. He pulled this person out of that place. He pulled this person out of that place. He brought them together. This one's got this gift that God gave. This one's got that gift. And look at how it's all coming together. It does matter where we fit in. We all have our proper roles. But He is the attraction. The center of attention is Christ. And even in the church, we have the privilege of making the wisdom of God known by the way we function. By the way God works through us. Now listen, to put that in perspective, apparently the angels saw and marveled how God created the world. But they're even marveling more about what God's doing and they're seeing the wisdom of God as he uses the likes of you and me within the body of Christ. If that doesn't excite you, man, there's something wrong. Pinch yourself. See if you're awake. That's why it doesn't matter whether I'm the foot or the arm. Listen, you can have that illustrated to you many different ways. In sporting events, in the Olympics, look at somebody gets involved in the opening ceremony, some in the closing, some are, are involved as judges, some are participants, but the whole thing has a big attraction and so forth uh, in sports. And it's not just jewels. Some make it that way. One of the illustrations that I came up uh, really impressed me, and I'm going to give it to you. When the Milan Cathedral, and some of you are not familiar with that, but was built, in the grand opening, and this is what I want to quote to you as I came across it, it just it was amazing to me. The grand opening of this enormous, just think of an enormous cathedral, and it was the grand opening of the cathedral. And what happened is everybody was excited. And they were all gathered, true story. And what happened is they were gathered, this little girl came up and she said this. Now get this, and I quote. She said it to the crowd that was standing about. She just said, a little girl. She said, I helped build that. And the people, in the quote, were basically ignoring the little girl until a god who was properly dressed and so forth came over to the little girl. And he heard her, so he said to her, and I want to get this right, he said, and I quote, show me the part that you had in the building. The little girl said, oh, I can't show it to you. So he looked in marble, and she said, but I did this. She said, I carried my father's lunchbox, and he built that every day. What's my point? That little girl was just as excited about that cathedral and the pot that she had in carrying a lunchbox. And everybody was marveling. The angels are marveling what God's doing. What difference does it make if you're carrying a lunchbox or you're putting the mortar together? We're all a part of it if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And John the Baptist had it right. He knew his part. 
He knew where he fit in. And he kind of illustrates that in verse 29, does he not? By using a biblical illustration. He identifies Christ. He identifies him. He's the bridegroom. He's the center of attention. Not me. He is. He identifies him as the Messiah. He's already done that in chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on his part as a forerunner and was excited about it, listen, right to death. And if he increased, and he did, and John decreased, it didn't matter to John. He was excited, if you will, just to point people to Christ. He identified himself. Well, how did he identify himself? Look at verse 29. He said, I'm the friend. I'm not the one. I'm just a friend. Nothing more, nothing less. So you say, well, I'm just this or I'm just that. Exactly. And we all have different parts. Now, this is a little different, but it probably and most related to it, it's like a best man at a wedding. Not exactly, but like that when he says he's a friend. And he says, like the best man, I'm not the center of attention. It's the bride and the bridegroom. He said, I'm just there. And by the way, back then, the friend had a lot more responsibility than even a best man had today. But if you think of a best man, he stands up there and so forth, and he smiles and so forth. But it's not about him. It's about the bridegroom. And that's what he's saying. He was happy in fulfilling his function. Why? Because that was the will of God for him. He knew God's will, and he wanted God's will in his role. Is that really what you and I want? Do we want God's will in our role, and are we able to function wherever? Listen, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God has placed us in the body as it pleased him. Wherever we are is right where God wants us to be. That ought to encourage you. Wherever you are in the body of Christ is right where God wants you to shine. Right where God wants you to be used so that he gets the wisdom in front of the angels. And they look and they say, look at that. I got no doubt in my mind. I'm, I'm serious. I got no doubt in my mind. The angels look down and say, someone like that guy standing in the pulpit, you've got to be kidding me. Only God could do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's true wherever you fit into the body of Christ. It shows the manifold wisdom of God. He was not interested in a following for himself. How are you as a Sunday school teacher? How are you as a Bible teacher? How are you as a nursery worker? How are you as a person in the body of Christ? You interested in having people follow you? He wasn't, John the Baptist wasn't interested in people following him. He wasn't interested in self-glory. He wasn't interested even in his work being exalted. He was interested in the Messiah being exalted. He led to the solution of the problem because his focus was absolutely right. And the solution obviously came in verse 30. And what is it? He said, he that is Christ must increase. This has been quoted so many times, but I must decrease. Listen to this rather marvelous to me as I studied it this time through, as far as I could tell, at least in the gospel according to John, these are the last words of John the Baptist. 
Wow. His last words that John records in this gospel account on the lips of the humble man is, you know what? He has to, de- he has to increase. I've got to decrease. It's less about me. It's more about him. What last words that would be. He was content with Christ's exaltation. How do I illustrate that? I tried to think about that, and I, the sunshine is what came to my mind. The stars shine bright at night, don't they? Are the stars out right now? Sure they are. They shining as bright? No, why? The sun's taking it over. That's how we should be, like the stars. Bright and shining for Christ, but I'm telling you, when he, when he dawns and he comes into the picture, we ought to just fade. We're still there. We're still working. But the sun is what's seen, the real sun, the son of God. Application, very quickly. We'll wrap it up. we got something to do here with Mark in a second. What about application now? That's the context. John the Baptist was basically saying, look, get your attention off me. I've always been pointing to him. And the, the way he solved it was saying, it's all about him, and he's got to increase, I've got to decrease. He had the right focus. What about our lives? How about our ministries? Let me ask you some things. Maybe you're an usher. Maybe you're a nursery worker. Maybe you're involved with women's ministries, men's ministries, involved in the school, involved in different capacities. Do you think everything revolves around you? Do you think everything revolves, listen, around your ministry? That you're the center of attention? Or that I'm the center of attention? If we do, we've got it all wrong. How do we fit into the body of Christ? How do we fit into the local assembly? Do we think of it that way? I mentioned ushers just a stack because they were going to have a meeting today. It would be very easy for even the ushers to center everything and all their decisions when they get together in a room on their ministry and how theirs is the key ministry and lose focus on the fact that this is, number one, all about Christ. Number two, how does the ushering ministry fit into the church? And what I ought to be doing is being concerned about the overall ministry of the church and how my ministry is accomplishing the glory of Christ as it fits in to the direction that the elders are leading. We can get focused in. And we can have splits in our own church over this ministry thinking they're the only ministry. That ministry thinking they're the only ministry. This person thinking that they're the only ones that are fighting for Christ. It can happen, and it does happen in local churches. We ought to work hard. We're to do things well. The Scriptures tell us that every place. But everything is not about me. Everything is not about you. And everything is not about your ministry. And everything isn't about my ministry. Everything's about Christ. Everything is about what He's doing. Everything is about his church. And to bring it right home to the local church, everything is about what he's doing in the local church that he's brought you into. It's not about you. It's about him. And until each and every one of us get that into focus to see everything I have comes from God, everything is to bring manifest glory to him, everything is about him, we will never function the way we should individually or collectively. Because we'll either not be doing what we should be doing or we'll be doing what we should be doing. However, we'll be drawing attention to ourselves. 
That's why it should be a delight to send people, people forth. How is God glorified in your life? How does God get the glorif glorification in your ministry, in mine as well? Do we bring people to Christ or do we bring people to ourselves? Do we expose people to the gospel or do we expose them to what we're doing? Our priorities, very quickly put, it goes this way, I believe, in Scripture, and I'm going to save some time here. I believe our priority should be God first, others second, and then ourselves. Look at those verses on the side. God first, others second, then ourselves. Want to take it a little bit further? How about whatever ministry you're involved in? It should be about God's glory, the overall good of his glory in the body, and then about our personal ministry, whatever that might be. Bible study, ushering, nursery, kitchen. But the minute you start making it about your ministry and pulling attention to that above everything else, the body won't function the way it should. Some of you know that I referee. It's interesting because even with refereeing, you know the most satisfaction a referee gets out of a game, by the way, when I do a game? And I've, by God's grace, been put in some pretty exciting situations. Let me put it that way. But the greatest joy I get when I referee a game, no matter how, what the context was, and I'm talking about thousands of people in the stands, it's when I walk away from the game and then people afterwards say, who ref that game? I'm telling you the truth. It's when they say, and I've had some phone calls saying, were you in that game? Yeah, I was. They didn't even notice the referees. Why? Because it's not about them. It's about the basketball game. Or it's about the soccer game. It's not about the referee. You see? Put that in perspective. This isn't about you. It isn't about me. It's about Christ. And John the Baptist knew that. And he said, you know what? It's making him increase and me fade to the background. And his disciples had to learn that lesson. And if he hadn't helped with that lesson, there would have been great divisions right away as Christ was beginning to prepare to build his church and laying some foundations. But even John is a leader. If you're leading a ministry, it's even more incumbent upon you to make sure the focus of attention doesn't go to you. And the focus of attention goes to Christ. Every one of us have some things to do. But make that your motto. He must increase. I must decrease. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. Father, what could have been a tremendously divisive situation that came out of probably an honest discussion of theology and even how purification and these baptisms fit into the plan of God. And John turned it around to be a very profitable thing in reminding us that it is about Christ. It's not about us. It wasn't about him. May each one that belongs to Christ have Jesus Christ as a center of attention. Might each one of us in our ministries have Christ as the center of attention. Might we fade into the background and might all the glory go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Might we function better as a local assembly as each one of us work hard and diligently in whatever area you've placed us in the body. But let it all go to your honor and glory. For those who don't know Christ, help them to see that we're all sinners. They're no different. But Christ paid the penalty and price to satisfy the righteousness of God. 
And might they come to faith in Jesus Christ, see that their sins can be forgiven as they come in repentance, come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would be saved. Cleanse from their sin. Move from death unto life. And Father, have a relationship within the body of Christ. Guide us now as we go into this special portion of the service this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.